Well, greetings to everybody. I hope you can understand my accent. I mean, I don't have an accent. You guys have an accent. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, just ask uh, Angelo or, you know, one of the Tolentino children's if you need a trans children, if you need a translation, they'll, they'll translate for you. But anyway, yeah, we are currently in uh, South Africa, uh, Johannesburg, crime city of uh, the Southern Hemisphere. So uh, we are busy with a church plant there, uh, which has been going for a while. And we've, by God's grace, uh, I, we arrived two years ago after India. And uh, we, were, we started there to start a seminary, and it hasn't quite started yet. I'm hoping it'll start next year. And then in the meantime, I got involved with uh, Antioch Bible Church in Johannesburg. The pastor is Tim Cantrell. A wonderful brother. I, I knew him from 20 years ago from seminary days. Uh, and it's just been such a blessing for us to be there uh, in Johannesburg. Uh, Antioch Bible Church has planted two other churches uh, in about one, three, three hours to the east of us and another one to the south of us. So they're very active in church planting. And uh, it's, it's growing. It, we were in school like this for many, many years. So be encouraged. We recently... Built uh, some of the men in our church got together. One elder gave up his entire year of his life to build a building for us, and so we have uh, recently just gone into a new building, which takes uh, can seat about 300. Um, and we had about 220 people, and now we we can't find enough seats. We have problems, <laughs> good problems. So God has blessed the ministry in spite of us. Uh, we have just. Uh, uh, sought to be faithful according to his word uh, and as I will preach today uh, it is amazing what the gospel has done it's not amazing what we've done we've done nothing we have just tried to be faithful with what the Lord has given us and so uh, we, we're thankful to be in South Africa my wife Gigi a uh, faithful wife of 22 years and uh, then I've got an older daughter Taryn she's 19 she's in university there uh, a son, nine, uh, or 17, Nathan, he's also at the university. And another boy, Riley, 15 at home, still being schooled at home. And then we have Cameron, who's 11, going on 21, uh, also being schooled at home. So, so we've got a full, uh, just a full day there for my wife, and she's such a blessing to, to me and to the church. Uh, and I actually, sorry, but I have to say this, I can't wait to be back with her <laughs> in a few more days. So it's a joy to be here. Uh, as Angela said, uh, I'll, 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 I don't know. The Lord just knit us together in India, and it was, it was an amazing time, a blessed time. So it is such an amazing joy for me to be here, to see Angelo and what the Lord has done in his family and in this church. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing uh, to see what God has done. So I'm thankful for that. But in the meantime, let's get straight into the Word of God. And... Uh, what I want us to do is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. And uh, I'm glad Angelo said that, uh, you guys, uh, that I can preach for two hours, because that's what we do in Africa. So, uh, what? <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, uh, I, I mean, I love 2 Corinthians. I love this letter. This letter is, is, is amazing. It, it really illustrates and yields to us many principles about Christian ministry and you're a new church here and a new church plant and you start you have to work all these things out as you go through ministry what is ministry about uh, and 2nd Corinthians is is a very informative uh, letter to us because uh, you think about it, the Apostle Paul had to face many many difficult situations with the Corinthian church a brand new church come out of the the pagan culture all around them uh, into a church, and now they had to work out how does ministry work, how does church work, and so uh, often people say this this uh, letter is just for pastors. Pastors can learn from this letter, but actually, no. If you are a believer here today, you are a minister, you are a servant of the Most High. Uh, you are called in a profound way, if you think about it, to render sacrificial and joyful service. Right here in this church. That's what you're called to do. And no matter what the ups and downs are, no matter what the trials and the afflictions that will definitely come your way, you are called to minister in this church, no matter what your age is. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are called to minister here. And so 
Uh, one of the questions is then, well, what is successful ministry? I mean, you're a brand new church. What, what, what will make us successful? And if you survey the world today and you go to that uh, amazing uh, a repository of, of amazing world knowledge called the World Wide Web, uh, you can find websites that will give you the top 10 most successful churches and pastors in the world. Uh, and so I did that. I wanted to find out what, what is a successful pastor. Uh, we planting churches in South Africa. And so let's see what the World Wide Web can tell us. So number one, this is what is listed on one of the websites. Number one, you have to have a growing television network. The number one pastor is actually in Brazil. He has a television network. Uh, Ida Macedo of $1.1 billion, that's what it's worth. And then at number two, they list Pat Robertson. His uh, Christian broadcast CBN is worth about $500 million. Started in about 1960. Famed for starting Regent University. So this is, this is number one, top successful pastor. Number two, you need to have a successful television show. Uh, Matthew Ashimolo in the UK, originally from Nigeria, I believe, converted from Islam, has, he owns something called the Kingsway International Christian Center. And he has a program called Winning Ways. It's, it's basically top of the charts in Europe. So many of these things are not even in the US. It's worldwide. Number three, if you want to be a successful church and be a successful pastor, is uh, you need to have a side business as well. And so they list George Foreman. Do you remember the, the, uh, the boxer? He's worth about $250 million. So he was throwing punches until about the 1990s, and then he needed a job, so he became a minister in 19, a pastor in 1997. And one of uh, having a successful business, I don't know if it's still going here, but it's called George Foreman Fat Reducing Grills. So really, you've got to have a side business as well. Then they said the fourth thing that you've got to have to be successful is a book publishing ministry. And... You might suddenly think of book publishing people here in the United States, but the biggest book publishing ministries are actually overseas. So David Oyedepo, he's worth about $150 million. He has the most successful writing ministry in Africa. And he's published many, many titles. And the church where his, uh, where his church meets, Faith Tabernacle, has 50,000 seats. That's how big it is. It's massive. Uh, he owns uh, several private jets because he feels he needs to bring his preaching to the rest of the world. Uh, up there is also listed people like Joe, Joel Olstein, Joyce Myers. And so you've got to have a successful book publishing ministry. The fifth thing, this is what they list on the website, is the ability to heal. I'm serious. That's what it says. And so they list Benny Hinn, worth over $50 million, claims to have healed over 1 billion people what he claims. Uh, I need to bring him out to South Africa because I don't know, it's not working there. A lot of sick people there. Uh, also uh, listed by this website is TB Joshua, uh, who they said a successful ministry, you also need to have uh, accessories and helping things like holy water, which is seen as a success story to anoint people with that. The last thing they said is a mark of a successful ministry is you need to have multiple degrees and a worldwide music ministry. So T.D. Jakes is listed there. He has 13 degrees. He also has a Grammy and Dove Award for the uh, best gospel-selling album, Live at, Living at the Potter's House. And then Hillsong is also put into this category. And so we look at these, these kind of six marks of successful ministry, and we kind of chuckle, but then what about conservative evangelical pastors like us? I mean, even our religious, our subculture, our religious subculture paints a picture of, of what a successful pastor is. Well, a successful pastor must be a good-looking young man, well-groomed. He needs to be an excellent communicator. He has to have the gift of the gab. Uh, he must be able to flawlessly manipulate the power of words. Uh, he must be able to motivate and inspire people in his church. And because of this, the successful church or the successful pastor. His church is growing up into the thousands now. He's a multimedia expert. Uh, he has marks of professional excellence uh, about his ministry, and uh, he's very good at the two-minute soundbite videos that he produces. He's well-known with, with a popular theological blog on the web, often seen to be interacting on 
deep theological subjects that he writes on every day. And, you know, waiting in the wings are just various book deals that, that just are going to elevate him to celebrity status. And when you see pictures of his family, it's a beautiful, well-groomed family. He's, he's, his wife is uh, addressed as an executive. His children obviously love him. Uh, they do not have any dental problems because they have these shiny white teeth. Uh, and the church loves him. The church loves him. And so he's a, sh a shining picture of evangelical success. Just go look at the websites of evangelical churches. So what does that mean for the layperson like you and me in that church? Well, again, search the web. You will find out that uh, the attendees are young, very trendy in fashion. They have a great personality, great-looking spouses, and life just seems very easy. I mean, his shirt is perfectly ironed. Uh, she has perfectly made up hair. Uh, they ha again, they have no dental problems. Uh, their shoes are pointy and shiny. And they live in this beautiful, serene house with this magnificent garden. And so they're perceived as intelligent, well-known for downloading and listening to the best sermons from the best evangelical pastors out there. And by the way, uh, just the lay, average layperson in his church is studying the basics of biblical Greek by Wallace on the side. So these are the pictures you get when you look at successful Christian ministries in the web today. And then, you know, you take a look at yourself, and you feel a little bit disheartened. <laughs> uh, your shoulders drop. You become discouraged. Uh, you know your weaknesses. You know your struggles at work. Uh, you know the battle at home in the house, the pressures with your kids in education. You know your responsibilities at work, which are overwhelming. Uh, you feel pressured every day. You can barely keep up. And waking up exhausted every day just seems to be the norm for your life. You know you love the, the Lord and, and you desire to serve Him. But every day you, you're just so familiar with the sin in your own flesh that you have to battle. You love the Bible. You love preaching. But finding time to even read your sermon notes is a battle. You wish you had time to study more. But life's pressures don't even permit this. And at nighttime, you can barely be, read a paragraph of your Bible or a book before you fall asleep. And yet others seem to quote passages right at the right time, at the right, right moment. But you, you can hardly remember the verse you were thinking about 10 minutes ago. And so you want to give the gospel to family and friends. But when you try, you, you, you fear hostility or a question maybe I, I can't answer. And it really feels awkward. And each month goes by and, and nobody seems to fall down and repent at your feet. I mean, at least one of your children are always sick. Your older children need attention at school. And if you're working, the boss seems to be more and more demanding. And so you think to yourself, well, if God is going to accomplish anything of, of, of importance or lasting value in my church, in, in, in my life, in our church, in our ministry, well, he's going to have to use one of those shiny, smiley Christians with those pointy shoes. Because uh, it's, it's not going to be me. So this is how you think. And so if you think of your weaknesses, if you think that your weaknesses are a major obstacle to God's purposes, I can say, I can say this to you. You're in good company. <laughs> you're in good company. And there would have been plenty of people in that Corinthian church that would have agreed with you. All right? But here's the point as we get into this text. Uh, Paul did not agree with that. All right? He did not agree with the Corinthians' idea of success. You see, the gospel picture of what a successful uh, servant or minister of the gospel is, is completely opposed to what the world teaches us. It's completely the opposite. You've got to realize that. The gospel actually gives us a, a, a divine paradox as to who or what the successful servant of Christ really is. And that's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians today. Now, if you recall the, the context of 2 Corinthians, uh, there were false teachers that had come into the church from a Jewish tradition. They had infiltrated the church, and they wanted to make an impact. They wanted to take control of the church. They wanted the people to come underneath them. Uh, and so they, they knew that they couldn't really undermine Paul's teaching because it was the gospel. And so what did they do? They attacked Paul himself. They had to build a case that Paul was not a true apostle at all. 
And so they used every low blow they could, seeking to shred his character. They accused him of deceitfulness. They said, just look at his travel plans. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 17. Uh, you know, he, he changes his plans for his own reasons. He's, he's purposing according to the flesh. In other words, he's motivated all for his own uh, ends. They accused him of having no credentials, no authorities, no letters of commendation. I mean, let's face it, he wasn't part of the original 12 apostles, right? He's an imposter. He doesn't have a, any mandate at all. In fact, Paul's got no status in the church of all. If you think about it, this is what they said. They accused him of greed and robbery and making some sort of scheme to, to take the church offering. And you'll see that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You know, Paul, the real reason that Paul was pushing giving was to really embezzle the funds from the church. That's what he was doing. But one of the greatest accusations against Paul uh, from these Judaizers, that's what they were called, was simply Paul's life. They just looked at his life. And they just said, look at Paul's pathetic and beggarly life. Look at it. I mean, Paul is marked by one trial after another, one terrible conflict over another. Honestly, they said, uh, he doesn't look like the traditional model the current traditional model of Jewish success. He really doesn't look like that. And Paul in this letter, he's already spent uh, over a chapter and a half describing the glorious gospel of Christ, the, the inex inexpressible glories of the new covenant, the aroma that leads to life. Those are phrases he uses. The resurrecting light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the rejuvenating light. Uh, that bursts into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of, Christ, of God in the face of Christ. This is the ministry of righteousness. This is the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry that never fades. The light that shines in the darkness into the depths of the sinner's heart and just radically rips out that heart of stone and makes him completely new. Imparting the very life of the Holy Spirit himself. And so the false teachers were saying, well, his message is correct. But you know what? You cannot tell us that this magnificent, glorious Christ, uh, this life-changing message uh, is kind of in a guy with the likes of Paul. I mean, he's pathetic. I mean, he's, he's a bum. He's hopeless. Uh, he's so wretched. Uh, he's anything but impressive or glorious. He's always down and out. He's always beaten up. He's always stoned and destitute. He gets himself chased out of every village. He can't even feed himself. Come on, guys. He needs others to support him. Look at his clothes. Nothing but secondhand rags. Frankly, you know what? He resembles a homeless vagrant. He seems so, always so close to dying. This is the thing. He's always starving to death. What's with this guy? I mean, even if you set all that aside... You know, he has no family name, no pedigree, no, no credentials. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul repeats one of their hurtful accusations. He says, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's what they accused him of. And so the false teachers in these church use these low-down character assassination techniques as old as Genesis 3 to remove the credibility of Paul. And so Paul answers these objections in this letter. And in this section today, and as he answers these objections, these accusations coming from these false teachers, he gives us one of the most counterintuitive, paradoxical descriptions of what the successful servant of Christ is. And you get it from this passage. Just read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12 in your text. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to, over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us by life, but life in you. And so this 
this is an amazing thing. What stands out to you immediately is the massive contrast, if you think about it, between the glory of the message of the gospel, the message of the new covenant, uh, the message of Christ, and the weakness and the shame and the suffering of the messenger. You see that contrast right away. And this is so, so completely opposite to what the false teachers were claiming in Paul's day. And Paul is saying, far from disqualifying me, far from dis disqualifying you and me, this is God's design. This is his design. And so if you want to have a title today, you can call this the divine paradox of the successful Christian servant. The divine paradox of the successful Christian servant. And perhaps to help you take notes, we'll have four points that you can hang this on. And the first point starts with peace, so you can follow. This, the first point is the parallel in the paradox of the Christian servant. The first point is the parallel in the paradox of the Christian servant. Look at verse 7a, right at the beginning there. So Paul is now going to parallel. He's going to show what the Christian servant looks like. He's going to parallel it with something in everyday life. And so this is what he says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So always in Scripture, you see this massive difference or contrast between the glory of the message of the gospel and the messenger. It's always a contrast. Putting it another way, uh, there's a stark contrast between the glory of new covenant ministry and the shame and the weakness of the actual new covenant minister. And we're all ministers for Christ. All right? So note, look at this vivid word picture he uses in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And those of you who are saved here, you will know that if you've repented and believed in Christ, and that if you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, you know that the gospel is an amazing treasure. You know that. It's not an ordinary treasure. It's one of a kind. It's unique. It's priceless. And so the gospel is embodied in the new covenant. Whereas in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it brought hardship and death. The new covenant brings spiritual life and saving righteousness. The old covenant provided limited access to the veiled glory of God. The new covenant provides us continual access to the admiration of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. This is what Paul goes through this letter. The law made nothing perfect, Hebrews 7.19, but rather it served to highlight our sinful passions. It was a copy of and a shadow of heavenly things, Hebrews 8.5. But the new covenant is more excellent. It brings this inward transformation. It brings conformity to the image of Christ, not from the outside, but from the inside out. And so we all, with unveiled faces, are being transformed daily. And so the old covenant was powerless to transform. The law of God was powerless to transform the heart of man, but the gospel of the glorious uh, glory of Christ shines into that dead and dark and selfish heart, and it makes alive, and it illumines the deep darkness, and concurrently the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that washed and redeemed soul, and He awakens, and He moves new affections to hate your sin and to love righteousness, and so the gospel is a better covenant. And it's been enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8. And therefore, it's a wonderfully glorious, and it's a priceless, priceless treasure. Now, think about it. If you found such a priceless treasure, don't you think that you would put it in the world's most strong, strongest container? I mean, you would protect that thing. And you just think of Fort Knox, right? Kentucky. 180 billion worth of gold in that place. And you just look. I mean, the walls are impenetrable granite, right? Uh, the, the, the blast proof doors are, are well, I'll have to translate this into, uh, from centimeters to, I think they're about 20 inches thick. The main door weighs over 20 tons. On top of that are layers upon layers of electronic security, too secret to publish. I tried to look it up, but it's like classified, classified, classified. You can't get in. 
all right? They have 30,000 ground soldiers and enough military equipment that most medium-sized nations don't even have to protect us. But look what it says here in our text, verse 7. It says, this amazing, priceless, divine treasure that the God of the universe has given us is contained in an earthen vessel. An earthen vessel. You know, that is a common clay pot. That's what that is. That is a common clay pot. And this underlies the success of you being a successful Christian servant. This is it. And so, if you think about it, God then, in this way, puts on display the priceless treasure, the splendor of the glory of the magnificent gospel of Christ. And how does He do that? He, he houses it in the most humblest, the most breakable, the most unremarkable, the most unimpressive common clay jars. Like you and me. That's what he does. And so, so this is what Paul, this is the parallel right here in the passage. The parallel of this, of this divine paradox. And if you think of the common clay jar in those days, it was probably the most cheapest, the most unimpressive, unattractive, fragile, common use pot in Paul's day. It was really not valuable at all. They were so cheap, you know, when one cracked or broke, you simply just threw it away. Didn't bother to fix it. They're not really fixable. And so you just went down the street, you grabbed a few shekels, you went to Shalom Walmart down the street, and you just buy another box of them. That's what you do. And even broken glass was more valuable than these common clay pots. Uh, cracked clay jars could not be recycled. All right? It was basically useless. And so no one took note of clay jars in those days. Uh, just as much as we would take note of a paper plate. So uh, if you think about it, those common clay jars were like of the ancient world. They were kind of like the paper plates that we have today, all right? Or if you're older like me, it's kind of like the newspaper used to wrap your fish and chips in, you know? So have you ever thought about this? Think about it for a second. This is who we are. We are not fine porcelain dinnerware or imported bone china uh, that wealthy people would bring out on special occasions to impress you know, the important guests. We are actually the ordinary, fragile, expendable, breakable earthen vessels. We're not the high-powered. We're not the culturally relevant. We're not the erudite elite. All right? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 6, 26 to 27. Turn back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. And this is what he said. For consider your calling, brethren, verse 26 of chapter 1, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the, des and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that they are. So how many of you got a LinkedIn profile? How about putting this in your LinkedIn profile? See how many job offers you get at your next mega church. Qualifications, base, despised, of no worth, nobody, tramp, worthless. Let's see how many hits you get on your LinkedIn profile. Okay? Now just turn forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Here again, Paul picks up the status of the gospel servant, the gospel minister, you and me. Again, look at it. Verse 9 of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. For I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are without honor, verse 11, to present to this uh, present hour. We are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil, working with our hands. We are reviled. We bless when we are persecuted. We endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dreg of all things, even until now. Wow, think about that. So you guys, your next big advertisement, billboard, that you stick against the five freeway, just put this on it, all right? Church in o Oceanside, 
looking for scum and dregs. Please apply. I'm not sure uh, if too many of the young and trendy will sign up. Okay? Think about it. So most of you probably got up this morning from your comfortable beds and had a nice great cup of, well, you would have had coffee. I would say tea. And, and breakfast, and you put on your nice shirts and jackets and whatever, get the kids color coordinated as best you can, jump in relatively comfortable cars, and come to this, 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 this wonderful facility here that they've allowed you to rent, and yet, you know what? You simply are nobody. You simply are nobody, right? When we look to Paul, that great minister of the gospel, he tells us in Ephesians to imitate him. Uh, if we do need to imitate him, then we, we are imitating the dregs of all things. We're imitating the scum of the world. This is who the successful Christian servant and minister is. And you know what? When you hear it, it kind of grates against our modern sensibilities. We, we kind of don't like it. You know, we want respectability. We want that. And so it's amazing, uh, as Paul says this, the, the, the clay pots are distasteful. They're worthless but the contents, the contents is priceless. The contents, the contents of that pot is priceless. God's gospel is so glorious. But God in his infinite wisdom has determined to commit this divine treasure to weak, suffering, perishing men and women like you and me. Think about it. And that's the first point, really. The, the parallel in the divine uh, paradox that marks out the successful Christian minister. You know, as I said to you, I don't like being compared to a, a worthless clay pot. We don't like that. Uh, but, you know, the question comes up then. Why would God use such a shameful medium, like a clay pot, to, to display his priceless treasure? Why would he do that? I mean, why can't he just blaze down on us and make us into gloriously expensive bone china? I mean, he can do that, right? For all the world to see. Well, that's how it leads to our second point from this text, verse 7. The second point is the purpose of the divine paradox of the successful Christian minister. The purpose of the divine paradox. So as we look at that, verse 7, it says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power, of God, of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Do you see the so that there in verse 7? So that. Perhaps now you can... Begin to see the genius, the divine genius of God. So God entrusts his priceless treasure of the gospel to insignificant, frail, unattractive, unimpressive, common clay pots. So that when the amazing happens, when hearts are rescued from the domain of darkness, when new affections are activated for Christ and wills are made new and lives uh, are changed that, that were once bent after sin. And, and when the perishing receive eternal life, and, and, and eyes that were blind that now see the beauty of Christ, and, and that the fragrance of the gospel now smells like life, life itself, there will be absolutely no doubt as to who was responsible. Absolutely no doubt. There will be no doubt as to where that transforming power came from. It was not from the elegant and strong and attractive bone china. So we need to realize that God therefore is committed to using weak and suffering people to bear his priceless treasure. You need to realize that. God is rightfully and unselfishly committed to displaying his own holy and his perfect and complete and amazing glory uh, through common clay pots to all his creatures. Think about it. All right? If, if you were to commission someone, if God were to commission that a, a beautiful chest be built uh, to contain uh, his message, it would be a chest gilded with gold, precious stones, expensive fabric. Uh, the skill uh, of the container makers would be amazing, but people will then wax eloquently about the craftsmanship and the prestige of the container and not what is on the inside. And this is the point. And so by committing the precious gospel to common earthen vessels like you and me, God unmistakably magnifies the beauty and the brilliance of Christ in the gospel. All right? This is what he does. 
So perhaps now as you grasp and you understand the purpose of God in this paradox, this should change your perspective on the struggles that you face. This should change your perspective uh, even when you, uh, in terms of your, your thoughts about ministry, about ministry itself. Uh, this also means that the highly polished and attractive special effect gospel ministers in their ritzy and racy worlds, they actually detract, detract from gospel ministry. That's what they do. This is, I mean, the evangelical church should never buy into this. Because when people see their spectacular ministries and their amazing buildings, uh, they wonder if it's God's power or the minister's polish. Or, or maybe it was their money. Or maybe their ingenuity. Or just their charisma. That, maybe that's what brought results. And so it detracts from the gospel of Christ. If you think about it, Paul, Paul really has nothing. He's a nobody. He's not very pleasant to look at. The skin on his bald head looks bad. He's got scars and welts from numerous beatings. He was a common tent maker. He has no home. His stomach groans from hunger. His throat is parched from thirst. He says that himself. He's not an impressive speaker. He's not charming. He's the scum of the earth. No one's looking at Paul saying, man, it would be so cool if I could be like that impressive preacher in that ministry. That's who I want to be. He's the real shaker and mover. I, I, you people want to take selfies with him all the time. They, you know, this is, what, this is what we get. But Paul is actually, uh, he, he, I mean, people would say to him when they see someone like that, the jet setter, they'll say, maybe I can apply to be a Christian too. You see? And do you want somebody like that? All right. And Paul says, in the he responds to these accusations about his weak personal presence in 1 Corinthians 4. And he says simply this. He says, yes, my status and my weaknesses and my sufferings are true. And they are so disproportionate to the gospel message. And that is true because I am nothing. Because I'm worse than the scum that you scrape with your sandals. But far from disqualifying me from being a true servant of Christ and the bearer of the gospel... The marks of suffering that I bear in the body, in my body, are the very marks of my authenticity. That's what they are. It is brought through these endless afflictions that God, through these endless afflictions, God reveals the abundance of His divine power in the gospel. So this is very, very important that you should realize this. So, I don't know, if, I would say to, to this, encourage you as a church, brand new church, Flee from any worldly ideas that Christian success is comfortable, that it means a trouble-free life. Flee from it. Uh, don't seek to make your life more and more comfortable. Don't seek the praise of the world as you look around you and see other churches. Flee from this idea, even as you serve and minister as believers, that you should get some recognition. Uh, I need a bit of the limelight. I haven't been on Facebook for a while. I need some acknowledgement. Uh, uh, somebody at least send me a church email with my name on it, some accolade, some announcement, something, some elevation. At least a brass plaque maybe in, in, when we get a building one day. I want my name on this. Don't think that. Don't think like that. Don't think to yourself, this should be easy street by now. Don't run away from difficulties and hardships as you serve in this church. Don't hide from that. Don't avoid difficult relationships, taxing relationships. Because, you know, it's difficult. I don't like it. All right? Remember that you house that glorious treasure within you. All right? Take that treasure to your home, to your workplace. Love your weakness. Love your low profile. Love the lack of thanks and non-recognition. And as things get more difficult, and you get tired and overwhelmed and frustrated and drained, in those moments of weakness, remind yourself that you are exactly where God designed you to be. He knows your frame. He lowered himself to take on flesh. Remember that? The flesh of a despised slave. You are an earthen vessel bearing the richest treasure the universe has ever known. And know that it is he, God himself, who will work through your feeble and frail efforts to make the word of God magnified and effectual in the light of his people. So remember that. And so we looked at the purpose uh, of the divine paradox. Thirdly, the picture of the paradox. And this is a little bit more complicated. So what Paul does in verses 8 and 9 here, he's now going to illustrate what he's saying. And so he actually gives us a, an illustration right here in the text. 
okay? And what is an illustration? Well, it's like a window on the text. It throws light on the contents of what Paul is saying. So Paul expands and he illustrates this paradox of a successful Christian servant or minister with a series of pairs of words. And so eyes down, read verse 8. It says, yeah, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, you see there's a contrast between the first word pair. That's where you see the frailty and the weakness of the earthen vessel, the human weakness. And then the second word pair, you see the illustration of the surpassing greatness of the power of God. The weakness of the vessel and then the power of God. Notice the first term, like afflicted. This is the common hardship of the Christian. This is what we all go through. But the second term is the extreme situation. And But what does he put before it? He says, but not, but not, but not. But not implies that God actually divinely intervenes to deliver the Christian from the extreme situation. That's what happens. So bearing this in mind, let's read it again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And so first in this picture, he says we are afflicted in verse 8. Afflicted refers to any pressure or distress or tribulation. Paul says we are hard pressed. There's pressure on every side. There's persecution. Think of Paul from all sides. So these pressures sapped Paul of his energy, right? Uh, they sapped every ounce of his physical strength and his mental capabilities. But he says, but we are not crushed. We are not crushed. Do you remember Paul in Acts 18 when he, when he went to Corinth and he surveyed that godless, immoral city and he found himself under great pressure and he had fears within and uh, he, he experienced a failing resolve? The Apostle Paul almost failed there, right? He almost failed. And Corinth did such brutal violence to his soul when he saw the gross idolatry there that Paul almost gave up, almost gave up. And Christ appeared to him in a vision to comfort him and keep him going. Now, you'd think, wow, Christ appeared to him. is fantastic. That's amazing. But you know what happened immediately after that? Paul was chained and dragged before the beamer seat in Corinth to face judgment from the Roman consul Gallio. I mean, imagine, Jesus, I can't believe this happened to me. I mean, you just came to me in a vision to strengthen me. And here I am being dragged through the streets in chains to face Gallio. The Roman consul, what is going on? What is going on? I'm already exhausted. I'm already beaten up. Now I'm in chains. Right? Imagine that in Acts 18, 14. It just tells us what happened. So Paul is in chains and he was about to open his mouth. And then all of a sudden, the Roman proconsul, Gallio, lets him with the hook. Lets him go and drives all his persecutors away. He didn't do anything. The Lord worked and provided a way out. Paul was hard-pressed, but he was not left without room to operate and continue his work in Corinth. His testimony was evident to every single person around that beamer seat that day. And that's how the church started, because they saw his testimony. They saw it. They couldn't believe it. When people come before the Roman consul, they don't get out of there. They don't get out. All right? It's amazing. So God... The power of God was put on display, not the power of Paul. He was in chains, right? And so if you've experienced this kind of deliverance by God, and you get to the point where you're bereft of human strength, uh, you know, God has placed you in a specific situation for His glory. You've got to remember that. Whether it's in your job or your school or your family, you might be exhausted from trials. You're called to trust God in that situation. You're hard-pressed, but God will deliver you. He will never leave you. He'll never leave you. Second, look what he says there in verse 8. We're perplexed but not despairing. Okay? This might sound astounding to you, but Paul was often perplexed, confused as to what God was doing. Sorry. Sorry to, to pop the bubble there. But he was confused. That means he was at a loss. He was bewildered. Galatians 4.20, Paul says to the Galatians, I'm perplexed about you. How is it possible, Paul's thinking, that the gospel worked in such a powerful way among the Galatians, and now 
You want to complete your salvation by works? Lord, what is happening? What is happening? I don't get it. I'm at a loss. This is a cry of a spiritual father who loves his children and he's at a loss at how they could abandon the truth now or begin to abandon the truth. He, he was at a loss sometimes. Right? And so Paul says we are not despairing though. So we are never despairing. So in other words, we're at a loss, but we are never lost. What are you saying? We're never lost. The sovereign power of God will work deliverance and you will never find you, Christians, you should never find you in a fixed state of despair such that you lose all hope. This is amazing. Third, Paul says, persecuted, verse 9, but not forsaken. Everywhere Paul went, he was like the proverbial fox in the fox hunt. He had the hounds after him. The dogs and the horses were always behind, always behind, baying for the fox's blood. But Paul says we were never forsaken. He was never deserted by God. Do you remember in Acts 16, 16 where Paul was in Philippi and uh, uh, he was harassed by that demonic slave girl uh, and the owners were using her to make money and so Paul delivered her from the demon and then Paul and Silas were, were seized by those businessmen. They were delivered to the judge, dragged into the marketplace uh, and I'm quite sure the magistrate was given some bribes there and so uh, they were beaten and imprisoned. So Paul was persecuted and struck down but you know, he wasn't forsaken. He wasn't destroyed. He was bloodied from the beating. His clothes were enragged. He was chained in the stocks. Uh, and on top of that, a Roman jailer was guarding them while he was in the stocks. And then at midnight, God sends an earthquake. And everyone's chains fall off. The jailer saw such amazing power of God, uh, amazing display of God's power in Christ. He fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. You know what? That's an illustration of ministry. So here we go. Go to jail, be absolutely helpless and dependent on the power of God, and all you can do is pray and sing His praises, and then watch God show up and save people. That's what it is. Think of what the jailer did when he met Paul. Wow, Paul, you must be the coolest Christian I know. Great house, trendy togas, fast chariot, advanced lifesaver, lightsaber, smiley white teeth, perfect hair. I like those pointy sandals, Paul. They're good. Billboard on Philippi Main Street. It's fantastic. Look how blessed he is. Look how God has blessed him. Isn't that amazing? Important, wealthy. I'm going to get me some of that blessing, man. Paul, where can I sign up to be a Christian? No, what did the jailer see? Abject poverty, powerlessness, pathetic helplessness in a heap on the ground in the cell. And is there any doubt who converted that jailer? It was God, right? Right, this is it. So you see the divine genius? Do you see the astounding grace of God himself? And so, running out of time here a bit. Fourth point. We are struck down, the fourth antithesis here. We are struck down but not destroyed. Okay? Struck down means some of you do, do, do uh, jujitsu here. Yeah? I know that. But struck down means like a blasting blow that knocked men down to the, can uh, the canvas. Paul was often struck down by other men, beaten to the earth, ending up face first in a dusty road. But God's power is perfected in weakness. And every time Paul was delivered, in Acts 14, remember, he was struck down not by men's fists, but the hailstorm of rocks that hit him, that smashed and crunched against his soft skin and his bones. He collapsed. He was dragged out of the city and he was left in the dirt for dead. But he was not destroyed. Acts 14 says, as the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city again. Amazing. The words are straightforward and simple there. He got up and he entered the city. I mean, this would not go well for the marketing gurus today to have a picture of your pastor in a crumpled, bloody mess on the ground. And they go in and they say, uh, let's go and preach peace with God in these places. And then they show a picture of Paul crumpled up on the ground. I mean, the guys at CNN will be saying, guys, let's change the picture. This is not a good customer base. We need to go back to the drawing board. Let's not do this. Can you, can you grasp the radical nature of real Christian men in ministry, folks, from these pictures? God has specifically designed that his treasure be carried around in weak clay pots. Weak clay pots. So, as you look at verse 8, uh, once again, uh, it says we are afflicted. And by the way, it means in everything afflicted. 
perplexed, in everything perplexed, persecuted, in everything persecuted, struck down, in everything struck down. This is not an occasional experience. That's what it means. This is a common experience of, of being a Christian. This is a common experience. So the thing is this. Are you uncompromisingly doing the hard work of laboring in ministry? Have you experienced that? You know, in America, there's so much, there's so much religiosity. You know that. There are churches on every corner, right? Uh, there is so much. And by the way, it was the same in Paul's day. It wasn't that much different. It follows then that if you're witnessing to someone, perhaps a family member or perhaps a work colleague, not hesitating to confront them, pleading with them to put off sin and to, to put on Christ, telling them that their good works and their outward respectability and their church attendance do not save them, sometimes you're going to hit a brick wall and you're going to face a lot of persecution. There are going to be times when you're perplexed, confused as to how to move forward. And then most likely people will even turn against you. And they'll become your mockers and your enemies. And it seems like all those you share Christ with will turn against you because they're all Christians, right? And when you're serving people in the church to the max because you love Christ, there'll be times when you feel hard-pressed on all sides, pressed down, under pressure. And when you start to think that this person or that person is so needy and so demanding, and sometimes you're going to feel like, I can't take it anymore, right? When you feel like that, and when dear brothers and sisters even turn on you, remember, right? Remember what you are. You're a clay pot, right? You're a clay pot. In these moments, you've got to recognize that you're right in the middle of your calling, right? To fulfill being an authentic servant of the Most High. That's what you are. It's against the backdrop of your human weakness, that clay pot, that God is able to manifest Himself. And put on display the treasure of the surpassing power of the gospel in Christ. So don't waste the trials in your life, right? Don't waste them, right? Take each trial as an opportunity from God. And because out of your common clay pot, he will indeed shine forth his glory in your weakness. Let's pray. I'm going to stop there. Lord, thank you so much for your word that encourages us. And as we... We realize we are clay pots. Lord, designed as part of the divine paradox of being a servant of the gospel of Christ. Lord, may you use each one of the people here who know you, who have, who are, who have repented and believed and trust in you to be those clay pots, to shine forth the glory of Christ. And may many others here come to know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, as they hear the truth. We have been so sidetracked by uh, just ministry in both our countries as the flashy and the, and the rich uh, and the, what goes on display. And, but Lord, when we read this text, we realize that you are the one to be glorified through us. And so I pray, Lord, that we will grasp this with both our hands. And I pray that this church would grow for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.